Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they, at, or when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. May God apply the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. Some of you may remember an, an account that happened in 2007. The reason it's memorable is because of how bizarre that it is, but there was a a uh, female astronaut after completing a space shuttle mission um, had developed a romantic relationship with one of her fellow astronauts from that mission and uh, she moved in with him they had a relationship for a while and then the relationship turned cold and the, uh, the male astronaut decided that he was going to start seeing something, someone else, thinking, well, I want to continue to be friends with astronaut girlfriend and believed that she would be fine with that. She was not. And what happened was the new girl was flying into the Orlando International Airport and astronaut girlfriend had decided that she wanted to confront her. So she drove from Houston all the way to Orlando to carry out this plan. And it's reported that she had with her latex gloves, a black wig, a BB gun, pepper spray, a hooded trench coat, a drilling hammer, black gloves, and an eight inch pocket knife. In addition to all that, so that she didn't have to stop for the entirety or for the majority of this 900 plus 950 mile drive from Houston to Orlando. She also wore what amounts to a NASA issued adult diaper so she wouldn't have to stop. Once she gets there, the new girl realizes she's being followed as she's going to her car in the parking lot, rushes into her car, closes the door, locks it, astronaut girlfriend being very upset, is pounding on the window and starts weeping. Girl in the woman in the car then rolls down her window a little bit because she sees her crying and for her troubles, astronaut girlfriend pulls out the pepper spray and sprays her inside the car. So she ends up driving to the police station, astronaut girlfriend gets arrested and everything like that. Here's my point of telling this whole bizarre account is when we think of jealousy, that is 
the general account. Something similar to that is what we think of when we think of jealousy. This sordid tale of intense emotions. In fact, jealousy might be one of mankind's strongest emotions. And the Bible even acknowledges the intensity of jealousy. Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? We also know, this is no, question, this is no surprise to you, and just like the account I just gave, jealousy can also result in great harm. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And the word envy there is the same word for jealousy. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but jealousy makes the bones rot. Jealousy is an extremely damaging emotion. And it's this kind of jealousy that is taking place in our account today in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. In verse 17 it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. In the previous chapter, in chapter 4, you'll recall perhaps that Peter and John, it was just the two of them at the time, they were making their way to the temple. They saw the guy laying on the ground that was lame and um, was begging for alms. You know, Peter, silver and gold, I do not have, but what I have I give you. And then he heals the man. They end up going into the temple. You remember this account. And then this guy goes into the temple as well. And then Peter and John proceed from there to uh, proclaim the gospel to everyone at the temple. And in that account, the religious leaders arrested Peter and John. And after arresting them, they, uh, they question him. But remember what they ultimately came up with is they said, well, that something notable has been done cannot be denied. They're looking at the results of this miraculous sign with this one man, and so they didn't really know what to do with it. So they end up threatening them, Peter and John, and then releasing them. Now, at that particular time, maybe we could say, we don't know what was going on in their heart, exactly what was taking place, but I think we get a much clearer view now of what was going on in their heart then and what started in chapter 4 with Peter and John in the arrest, threatening, and eventual release now levels up to what we see in Acts chapter 5. Because in Acts chapter 5, Stephen read it uh, at the beginning here, it wasn't just Peter and John that are involved now. This is now all of the apostles that are involved, and all of the apostles are involved in performing signs and wonders and in proclaiming, then, the uh, truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the result of them doing all of that, back in verse 13, is it says, uh, none of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So, We have the proclamation of the gospel. We have people with 
hearts that want to hear. They have ears that want to hear the truth of the gospel, and as a result of that, they are viewing these people that are delivering this message of truth. They're holding them in high esteem, and the result from there is it says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, what kind of religious leaders are disturbed by widespread healing? That really doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, the high priest that's being listed here in uh, verse 17, the high priest is the physical embodiment. He is the person that is to represent everything that Judaism represents. The whole, basically the entirety of the Old Testament and all that's taking place as God is, you know, choosing a people to be his own and that he's going to give them a land and the covenants that take place until Christ, the high priest is this designated person, the only one that can enter the Holy of Holies once a year um, to perform all of the rites and the sacrifices to take away sin. That is the person that is the physical embodiment of all of that historical truth. And not only that, you figure the, the, the high priest, in addition to all of his other training that he would have been given up to that point, from his youth, he would have been reciting probably multiple times a day the Shema. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and all time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. They would have said these things continuously, every day, morning and evening. This is something that's coming out of their hearts. Not only that, they're, they're dressed in very particular robes. They have tassels on there that are explicitly designed to remind them of their requirement to obey the laws of God They're, so they can physically see this. So they're saying the right words with their mouth. They're wearing clothing that reminds them that they are to obey this righteous God, to love this God. And yet we see the high priest rise up. In other words, he is taking, quite literally, he is taking a stand against the apostles that are bringing hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind, strength to the lame. They're casting out demons, and they, he, the high priest, takes his stand to oppose them. What would cause the high priest and then the accompanying group of the Sadducees to want to oppose them from doing these things. Well, we have to remember what I brought up in the previous um, sermon, in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the verses that preceded that, which is the purpose of the signs and wonders to begin with. Remember, these are not random acts of kindness. They're not just going around saying, hey, you look like you're having a tough time. Let me give you a better day. They're doing this because the signs and wonders themselves point to the authenticity 
of the message that they carry. It points to the validity of what it is that they are saying. The signs are not the end goal. The signs and the wonders lay the groundwork so that people can know these cats are for real. And the power with which they are dwelt is legitimate. What do they have to say? And the word that these apostles would have had to say is the time of the temple is over. And that pulls the rug right out from underneath the position of power of the high priest. That changes everything, right? I mean, it's amazing how spiritual someone can be, how lofty, how high and elevated, if you put the right robes and the right hat and the right sash or use the right smoke or you, you know, whatever, all of the accompanying religious accoutrement, you know, all those things can make somebody seem so holy. But as soon as you go, oh, by the way, here's a message from God and it's going to remove all of the power that you have in your little scope, in your little world, you're going to get the claws. And that's exactly what happens here. It essentially, if they're being honest, and we think back to what they said from chapter 4, we can almost hear them saying to each other, well, yeah, I mean, we can't really deny. Look at everything that's going on. we got multitudes of people that are coming to the Lord, and, and um, all of these wonders are taking place, and the um, uh, demons are being cast out. They're, this stuff is real. But you know, if what they say is true, we're going to be out of a job. I mean, how selfish and juvenile it becomes in just a moment. I mean, they're essentially saying, yeah, but what about me? <laughs> I mean, people's lives are being changed, both physically and eternally. And they're saying, well, yeah, but what about me? I, I'm, I have some power and I have some authority and this would take all of that away. And so what do they do? They use the very physical or earthly authority that they have, of course, that God had given to them, and they exercise that authority against and in opposition to the apostles. Which brings up the point, too, that jealousy, because of the strength of that emotion, because of the intensity of jealousy, it almost always drives somebody to take action. People aren't jealous and sit still, right? They start by pacing, (laughs) and it only gets worse from there. I mean, there's horror story after horror story of things that people have done to another person completely and entirely out of jealousy because it drives them to action. And these men, the high priest and the Sadducees, are filled with jealousy, and so it has driven them to action. And what is that action? They're like, okay, we're arresting the whole lot of them, not just Peter and John now. We're going to arrest the whole group of the apostles, and we're going to lock them in a public prison. James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, reads this way. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, 
is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This is precisely what these men were exercising. They did, in fact, have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts. They did boast. They were false to the truth. They did not have wisdom that comes down from above. And what do we know about all of that? That it is earthly, that it is, un, that it is unspiritual, and that it is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Could there possibly be more disorder or a greater vile practice exercised than these men who are filled with jealousy and selfish ambition to stop, physically stop, the, uh, the spreading of the gospel message to a people that need it, that are coming from accompanying towns around Jerusalem to hear that very thing. And the reality is, it is no different today. The world that you live in and I live in today are dealing with the same things. Our culture doesn't just have a different opinion. They're not just positing an alternate view to the beginning of the universe or maybe just another option for marriage or for sexuality or for gender or for life in the womb. The world hates those who believe in the truth of the Bible. The world hates those who've committed their lives to the truth of Scripture. There is an unholy, Satan-inspired, protective jealousy to maintain control of the souls of men and women. And so what happens is the fruit of ungodly jealousy exposes that heart. See, the religious leaders, we, the, the account even in uh, the, uh, the previous chapter, in chapter 4, it doesn't begin with the religious leaders hunting down the apostles to oppress them. What happened was the Peter and John healed a man and were proclaiming the truth of the gospel, and that got them arrested. Now you go into chapter 5, and what you see is all of the apostles healing folks and then spreading the truth of the gospel, and that's what gets them arrested. The religious leaders weren't in good standing with God before they arrested the apostles. They were already wicked. They were already evil. It just didn't manifest itself until the truth of God's word brought light to bear, and they could not possibly let that stand. It's a reminder that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And these men were a physical manifestation of that cosmic war. They were summoned to action in jealous anger to combat the spread of the truth of the gospel. So, when we look 
again, at our world and the way that we live our lives and what goes on today, don't imagine this is not, I am, this is not a, a message about politics. I, I don't, I, this is not at all about the right and the left. This is about the right and the wrong. And as soon as you see people standing on the word of God and saying, no, that's, I, sorry, I can't accept that. That's not what scripture says. This is, this is what I stand on. You will get opposition. That is when it manifests itself because the world has an ungodly jealousy, an intensely emotional, protective attitude towards keeping the, keeping the souls of men and women away from the truth of the gospel. But, and I don't know if you've considered this, on the other hand, there is actually a positive aspect to jealousy. We don't really look at jealousy in that light very frequently. But there is a jealousy that has a little bit of similarity in ungodly jealousy in that it is also a very strong emotion and it is something that leads to action, but it comes from a righteous source. Paul, when he's authoring the letter to the Romans in uh, Romans 10, 1 and 2, this is what he writes. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So what Paul's doing is he's testifying to the legitimacy of a particular group of people, and he's pointing to the zeal that they have for God. And the word there, the Greek word for zeal for God, is the exact same word that is defined as jealousy, or is translated, I should say, as jealousy in our Acts 5 passage. So there is a different aspect to this same emotion, this intensely strong emotion that takes place, but in a positive sense. Paul is using that same framework to say, look, I am off, I am... Um, validating myself here. I am validating this particular group of people, and the evidence for their faith is the zeal, or if you will, the jealousy that they have for God. They have a, an emotional intensity that, and that they are protective of for God. In another place, in 2 Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians 11, the first three verses, it says, in 2 Corinthians 11, it says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. So again, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I know that he's referring to, he, uh, he's laying the groundwork that it's a metaphor, but he's using that metaphor to communicate this same concept of the intensity 
of emotion that he has for the people of this church. He says, for I feel a divine, so a godly jealousy for you. And look at the thing that he is jealous for, that he is intensely protective of. It is their purity. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Do you see that divine jealousy at play? Paul has this strong emotion that actually glorifies God because he is concerned for them that somebody else might try to actually stick their nose into God's business and to lead God's people away from his family. The church is the bride of Christ. And there is somebody, in this case explicitly named the serpent, that is there looking to deceive and draw away any that he can from the church. And so Paul refers to that as having a divine jealousy because he has a love for them and a desire to please God. Deuteronomy 4, 24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's, if, he's like that father that has children that, that the, the father just loves his children. And as a child walks off in the distance, um, my son and I were just talking about this, about how, uh, you know, my grandson, when we were in, in Disneyland a year and a half ago or so, it's like your, your child walks off and you lose sight of your child. Is there intense emotion involved in that? Oh my goodness, right? Because you're thinking, I must protect my child because I have such a great love for my child. There is a jealousy, there is a zealous attitude towards the love that a father has for his child. And in the same way, in Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He does not leave us to fend for ourselves. There are people in here that need to hear this right now. I hope you're listening. Because your God is a jealous God, just like the father who doesn't let their child out of their sight, if there's any sign of danger whatsoever, right? You don't possibly leave your child out of your sight if that's the case. In the same way, our father does not leave us, does not leave you to fend for yourself. Hey, I hope you figure it out. Best of luck. That is not the God that we serve. Not only does he not lack the power to do something about it, he has not lost track of you. You're not forgotten. You're not lost in the details that God is working with. God does not leave us to fend for ourselves, and he didn't leave the apostles to fend for themselves. You know, it's interesting, in addition to, um, what, or I should say, one of the main characteristics or one of the main theological differences for the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the resurrection. So, in, just like the high priest would have felt the pressure, he would have sensed the threat. You know, these are smart guys, highly educated men. 
they see th these things coming, and I would suggest they're probably very politically adept. So the high priest can see how things are playing out as the apostles are proclaiming this message of Jesus Christ and the end of the temple era. Well, likewise, they're proclaiming the reality of the risen Lord Jesus, and everyone knows that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So they can also see their... Uh, the ground under underneath them crumbling as well. Well, another aspect to what the Sadducees um, believe or don't believe, depending on how you want to look at it, is that they don't believe in angels at all. They don't, they don't believe in the existence of angels. So how ironic is it that when they are filled with jealousy, they exercise this menial, limited authority they have on the earth to make a public show of that authority, and filled with jealousy, they have the apostles arrested, throw them in a public prison, only to have an angel at night say, hey, yeah, you're not staying here. You're not staying here. And it's an angel that actually releases them out of prison or out of jail, and then with that release gives the apostles some instruction. That instruction is found in verse 20, where it says, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The angel didn't tell them, all right, you did your job, you were bold, and because you did such, such a bang-up job, we're going to get you out of jail, but you probably better go duck and cover for a little bit. That's not what the angel said at all. The angel said, nope, head right back to where you were, and you're going to proclaim the same message to the people that got you arrested. You are going to say the same things that, that resulted in the high priest and the Sadducees of, being, of having their hearts filled with jealousy. I want you to repeat that message. And what did the apostles do? Well, verse 21 tells us, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, began to teach. They got right back after it. What could motivate these apostles, having experienced, in a sense, a public humiliation? They were being held in high esteem. Multitudes were coming to the Lord, but then publicly they are arrested and they're put in the public jail. The angel releases them, which is great, great news. But what could possibly motivate them to go ahead and do what the angel said, which was to return back in the temple and to speak to all the people the words of this life? I would suggest that it is a godly jealousy for the love and approval of their God. They were zealous to obey. They had that intense sense of emotion of wanting to please their God regardless of the cost. Now, if we're bringing that home right here, like, let's be real for a second. Let's examine. If you've been around Reformed faith, the Reformed tradition of biblical faith, I think that's probably a better way to put it, then you know that our Reformed brothers and sisters, including me, focus on 
heavily on accuracy of doctrine, soundness of theology. We are very conscientious about presenting the gospel every Sunday on the Lord's Day during church. Our liturgy is designed to, uh, to highlight the law and then the gospel. We offer a Sunday school class every Sunday where we get to talk about the nuances of aspects of biblical truths so that we can have these things in our head more clearly. We offer here to our members a year-long discipleship track where we go through books that touch on exegetical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, practical theology. Oh my goodness, we, we hit on all of these things and it fills our heads so much. But does it penetrate our hearts? Because all of these things in our heads should be like those AED paddles that just shock us into action, that bring us, that enliven us, that, in, that engender an emotion of gratitude. We never want to be the people whose heads are so full of accurate, biblical, theological, doctrinal knowledge that don't have a heart filled with this strong, protective, godly jealousy for the relationship that we have with God and that then spills out into the relationship that we have with one another in the church. An increase of knowing the truth should always result in an increase of the affection for God and for his people. We should have a zeal. We should have a jealousy for our God. Or to put it in these jealousy-type terms, we should be fiercely protective, like that father for his child that does not want to let him out of his sight. We should not want to. We should have hearts that are overflowing with a desire to never let God out of our sight. We're not showing up here to check a box, to say, I was a good boy today. I went to church. We're here because we love our God. And that should bear itself out in the way that we talk to each other, in the way that we parent our children, in the way that we serve as a husband or or as a wife, in the way that we step in the gap for others that are in need and care for each other. Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So I ask you this. Is there something more miraculous about an angel showing up and releasing the apostles from a physical prison in the middle of the night than the freedom that he has granted you as his child? Of course not. A thousand times no. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are free. You are not bound by that law anymore. You are not wearing the shackles or the chains of sin and death. What are you doing with your freedom? What does it do to your emotions? How how do those emotions about God and how God feels about you, metaphorically speaking, how does that affect your life, your attitude, and your actions? 
frankly, it boils down to this question. What affection do you have for God? Is that godly jealousy there? Is that zeal? Is that protective attitude? Do you even have it at all for God? If you, if you even read the Bible, is it kind of a drudgery? Is it just a complete pain to do that? Do you come out of church simply because it's your duty? Does the degree to which you are stirred by the preaching of the word depend on the effectiveness of the preacher? Do they have to be pretty good at it? Do they have to be a really good speaker, deliver it just right? Or can a preacher pretty much stink, but deliver the honest to goodness truth out of God's word and your heart is stirred because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life causing these emotions to stir up in your life. Don't mistake the actions and the appearance of obedience with true heart-filled obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It doesn't work the other way. You can't just obey so that it will create love. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Don't come here to check up. Now, there, don't get me wrong. There are, you know, that, that, that spiritual phrase we like to use, common grace. I mean, coming here and being in church and doing those right things are going to produce more, you know, better things in your life, likely. But as far as it comes to having an affection for Christ, a love for God, that precedes true obedience. If you lack a zealous love, if you can hear this and go, I think I might have a problem here. I just don't have a love for God. Like, you're, you are being honest, and you, you, that whole idea of a fiercely um, protective attitude towards a relationship with God, you know, a godly jealousy, if that just doesn't exist in you, brother, sister, you need to repent. Go to the Lord in repentance and faith. Go to him laying your sins out and place your trust in the work of Jesus Christ. God will give you that love. It will result in obedience. The Christian faith is one that involves the heart. If all you're doing is, in a sense, going through Christian motions, doing Christian-y things, being a Christian-y nice person, I mean, that... That's about the same as finding out you've got a tumor and going on a spa day. It might make you feel better. It's not curing anything. You need to repent and believe. We also, those of us that love the Lord and who know they enjoy the love of the Lord, do a heart check. Where is your affection? What's the dipstick on the, the affection for God? Is there anything in your life that is preventing you from teaching the words of this life, to use the, the, the verbiage out of the Bible? Is there anything interfering with that? Is there anything in your life you are more protective of than your relationship with God? 
God takes the back seat because this is just more important. I have more emotional attachment to it. It, it pleases me more. I just want to spend time doing this instead. What gets the emotional priority in your life? And then set those priorities straight. I'll close with 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. It reads, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love, and obey, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Loving God and keeping his commandments. May God cultivate in us a godly jealousy in our relationship with him so that it would bear fruit a love, spark a fire in our lives to produce, to produce godly spiritual fruit and to grow that fire. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that the Christian faith is no cold, dead faith. And thank you that as you grow or as you um, increase our knowledge, we pray that you would grow our affection for you. In the simplest of terms, as Paul put it, may you increase and may we decrease. And may we love every minute of it. Lord, help us to enjoy, to embrace even the challenges knowing that you're doing it for your glory and our good. That indeed the fruit of our affection is the produce, the bounty of obeying you. Help us to love you more so that it might result in godly spiritual fruit. In Christ's name, amen.